I would tell them on the date of their anniversary as being admitted to the Florida bar to pull your oath out and reread it. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. I am uh, pleased to be here today with uh, Belvin Perry in the offices of Morgan and Morgan and having a chance to uh, interview you. Thank you for uh, giving me the chance. It's great to be here with you today. I know you announced recently that you are, um, you are going to be running for the state attorney for Orange County. And I, I just have to ask the question, you're 70, is that right? Just turned 70. It feels like a big project to take on in a season where I want to see you hanging out on a beach drinking a boat drink or something like that. Well, you know, I thought long and hard about it uh, before I did it. Uh, and I always ask myself the, the, the following question. Uh, life is about living, but it's also about uh, contributing back to a community uh that I love, particularly uh, when there is a need uh, that needs uh, to be met. I was born into a family that taught me about service. And even though I retired in 2014, I've never stopped. I've never stopped giving back. You know, I uh, serve on the board of uh, Florida A&M University and Bethune-Cookman University, and now I'm the chair of the board of Bethune-Cookman. And over the last several years, people have tried to get me to run for state attorney. Uh, They even tried to get me to run uh, when Ashton ran, and I said no. Uh, They tried to get me uh, to run uh, uh, when Ashton had uh, an opponent, Aramis Ayala. And I said no. And uh, then people began to ask me to really consider it. Uh, And and I started thinking, uh, did I want to do this at this time uh, in my life? And uh, the answer to that after deep reflection and some prayer was that it was a challenge uh, that not only am I willing to accept, I think I'm uniquely positioned to do what needs to to be done uh, to right that ship uh, at the state attorney's office. And you know, uh, unfortunately, I cannot get giving back this community out of my uh, life, out of my bloodstream. The one thing I've learned over the years that I did not learn when I was on the bench was balance in my life. Mm. So I've learned how to balance mixing uh, work with pleasure. You think you, uh, you're you going to be able to get that if you're – how many lawyers are there at the state attorney's office? Ballpark. This staff is uh, – in excess of 200 and some odd people. I can't tell you exactly how many lawyers are over there. That, that but doesn't, it, but that doesn't feel relaxing. Well, everything is about process. It, it, it's about uh, having the checks and balances and the systems in place uh, to make it all work. Yeah, it seems like your experience of uh, corralling all of those judges in Orange County would be it would be easier to run a bunch of lawyers than a bunch of judges, at least in theory. Uh, yes. 
I mean, uh, we had great judges when I was on the bench, I, and we have great judges now. And I had very few problems uh, with judges in terms of management. Uh, but still, you had to corral and, and make sure that everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. And you had to have the right systems in place. And you had to be able to uh, look forward. Because the world is ever-changing. The world is ever-evolving. Uh, so you have to keep abreast uh, 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 and try new things and new ideas. Yes. Um, in, in, ter- in terms of the the state attorney's office, and I just I'm, I'm kind of thinking about uh, the opportunity to shape all those young lawyers. You know, it seems like um, it used to be when I got out of law school. Um, it wasn't the only training ground, the state attorneys and the public defenders, but it was one of the main training grounds. Um, how do we train the the younger state attorneys um, to be excellent? You know, what are, what are the things that we can do? And by we, I mean really the state attorney's office to develop quality, impactful, you know, fair-minded yet justice-oriented prosecutors? First of all, uh, there has to be leadership at the top. The second thing is you have to put together a dynamic uh, training program that instills in them what their role is. A prosecutor's role is not simply to convict and send people to prison uh, for as long as you can send them. A prosecutor's job is to seek justice. Justice comes in a lot of forms. What may be justice to John may not be uh, justice to Johnny, or justice to Mary may not be justice uh, to Sue. So one of the things you have to do is instill in them their obligations, their obligations under Brady uh, versus Maryland in those cases, their obligation uh, in how to review cases. while you have all these tools that are available, these risk assessment tools, uh, you look at those, but those are not the be-all for everything. You take those in conjunction and look at, at the person. Uh, secondarily, you have to train prosecutors basically the basics, predicates. How do you question witnesses? Uh, what's a leading question? You know. How do you train them like that? Um, I was trained by watching. I mean, I, a big piece of mine when I was a, a baby lawyer, I followed some mentors. And that's. I, it seems like that's probably more difficult format for the state attorney's office. Not only do they need to watch, uh, they also need to have to go through actually doing it. Uh, being videotaped and, and, and you take them through a direct examination of an expert witness. Uh, and, and then you go back and you critique it. Uh, they have to be trained. What, I, I wonder why we don't do that in the civil world. Like I, I sit there and I think of my law firm and other law firms, why we don't take the younger lawyers, give them a, a practical exercise, videotape them, and then give them feedback. We just don't. We don't, and, it's, uh, and, and that's the $64 million question. Why is it we don't do that? And it's easier to do now because of the technology involved, because they can go in the evening, on the weekend, and look at the training videos. 
So number one, you have to get a good training program, and you have to have a person that's in charge. The second thing is uh, what you loosely call mentorship or role models. When I was a prosecutor, and I first went to court, uh, particularly when I got the felony, there was a felony division chief. Uh, that division chief would sit with me through my first couple of trials. So it wasn't like you were there by yourself, you either would sink or you would swim. It would be there to guide you. Then that person could see what your capabilities were. And I remember when I used to assign cases, I would look at the two people that was in my division with me. I knew what their relative capabilities were. I knew how to grow them and to make them good attorneys and then to make them better attorneys and to make them excellent attorneys. Uh, A a prosecution office is about training because, let's face reality, it's a stepping stone. What you have to do is attract those cadre of individuals that want to be what I call career prosecutors. You want to keep them there to train the newbies to overwatch the uh, lawyers as they go and leave. If you can get a two and a half, three year commitment out of some. You're doing or, pretty well, aren't you're you? You're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then if you can get some to stay five, maybe 10 years, uh, that's great. Uh, but you constantly have to have those people, those career prosecutors in place. You have to be savvy enough to know that you can't leave a prosecutor in a division too long. You have to rotate them to some less what I call strenuous things to give them a breather. I don't know why we don't do that in the civil world. You know, we 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 track someone in a career path, but we get specialized because specialized is typically more efficient, but then we kind of leave folks in a certain area. You, you take them out and you put them in something that's less stressful to give them a breather, to reinvigorate themselves. And then that way when they come back, they're fine. But if you leave anyone doing the same thing day in and day out, they're going to burn out. Yes. Let me me ask you that on on burnout. Um, How how long were you a prosecutor? I was a prosecutor for 11 years. Okay. And I read somewhere about... um, some of your cases, I was reading about them and thinking about them. Um, in, on the civil side, in my world, in medical malpractice and other cases like this, we, we deal with a different kind of intensity, but we're dealing with tragedies. We're dealing with the loss of life often or, or something like that. How, how have you, whether it's on the bench uh, or as a prosecutor, how do you, to be blunt, compartmentalize or deal with the tragedies so that they don't bring you down? You know, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. You have to put things in different compartments and leave it there. Some people are very successful at it. Some people are not. The one thing I would always tell people, particularly new judges, when they came on the bench and I said, now, Let me tell you something. I'm giving you a piece of advice that I've never taken. (laughs) Make sure you take frequent vacations. Get away. 
take your mind off it. Uh, find some recreational thing that relieves uh, the stress. Uh, the work will always be here. You know, say, well, I can't take a vacation because I have this work. Guess what? Uh, it's going to always be there. So, so I like all that advice. And, and I, that's what I want the truth to be. But I'm going to challenge you just a little bit. Mm-hmm. You said, I give him the advice that I didn't follow. Correct. Meaning, meaning you took it. It's, I bet you took it home with you in one form or another. There were times I could shut it off, and there were times, to be frank with you, that I could not shut it off. I'll yeah. give you a perfect example. Ever since I went on the bench, uh, I never could sleep any more than four to four and a half hours. I, that, that was it. If I went to sleep before midnight, I was wide awake at 1.30 in the morning and did not get sleepy until it was time to get up about 6, 6.30. My, my staff used to tease me when I was in the court system because it was not unusual for me to be answering emails at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. A funny thing happened to me. My last day was a Friday. Uh, and I did my last hearing and was finished about 2, 2.30 on a Friday. I went back to my office and I had said I was going to finish packing my office up. And I said, I don't think I'm doing that. Yeah, I get packed some other time. And I went home. One of my favorite things was uh, sitting in my recliner watching Blue Blood on Friday night. And this is what happened to me. About 10.30, I started getting sleepy, which never happens. Mm. Uh, my wife wakes me up at 11 o'clock saying, uh, blue blood is over with. I got up when it got in the bed. I didn't wake up the next morning until about 7.30. Nice. And it was like... All that was gone. Mm. But you know, uh, what was interesting about the, 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 the whole thing was uh, that was my normal. Do and you think the, it took a toll on you? I don't know. I'm going to be blunt. You seem like you're doing pretty damn good. You don't look like someone who is haggard. You look like somebody who is healthy and vibrant and excited. Yeah. I mean... Uh, I know this, uh, you know, the, the good Lord saw me through all of this, and, uh, but uh, as uh, you learn, and one of the things that if I had to go back and do it all over again, I would put more balance in my life. But, you know, back during those times, you know, you had to perform. I mean, I came up in an era where... Uh, Second best or third best just didn't cut it. And, you know, my margin of error and the way I would be judged would be completely different. So those were the things that I had to deal with. And that was uh, the way I was raised. Yes. All right, I'm trying something new. You are my first experiment in something. Okay. It's word association. Okay. I want to give you a word, mm -hmm. and you tell me either one word or a quick phrase, the first thing that it triggers in your mind. No right or wrong answer. 
All right, okay. here we go. Ready? Lightning round. Trial judge. Mm. Emerson R. Thompson. Former 5th District Court of Appeals judge. That's awesome. John Morgan. Philanthropist. Juries. The voice of the people. Judicial assistance. The key to the courthouse. Justice. A very elusive concept. Racial bias. An ugly but true fact of life. Growth. Learning. Mental health. Important. Single mothers. Underserved and underappreciated. Poverty. The dark side of our world. That was good. I really enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> yes. Your, uh, your dad, I, I did a little research before I came here. Maybe the second? There were two that went on the Orlando Police Department at the same time. Okay. Uh, January the 3rd, 1951. First two black police officers in the city of Orlando. Richard Arthur Jones and Belvin Perry Sr. Yes. What was your dad like? My dad uh, was uh, the strict disciplinarian. He was a very loving father, but a very firm father. And he and my mom expected perfection. It, it started with when you hit the floor in the morning, before you would go wash your face, brush your teeth, or whatever, your bed had to be made. Completely. Every day. Every day. Once you got out of it, you did get you did not get back in it. What about an afternoon nappy? If you wanted to take a nap, you better get on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, n n no bringing food or snacks or anything into your bedroom. Everything had a place. A buddy of mine who. Uh, actually appeared in front of you as a criminal defendant when you were a judge and he's a he's a buddy of mine I was talking about what uh, what questions he would want to ask you and what he said is I would want to know what was the 10 year old Belvin Perry like I was like a typical kid I had that mischievous portion just like every other kid uh, I was very inquisitive uh, I like to read a lot, uh, and uh, I was just a, a typical 10-year-old growing up uh, uh, in the Deep South. I, I can remember at age 10, uh, we lived on South Street near the corner of South and Terry, and that was our world. I remember going up... Uh, a block and there was the uh, segregated library. I spent a lot of time there. Across the street from the library was the church that I attended. And every time the church was open, we were there. Uh, I remember going across- Which we know was open every Wednesday and Sunday. No, it was uh, Tuesday, Monday. And depending on adult 
choir rehearsal and what I was there sitting there uh, when somebody went to choir rehearsal and then youth choir rehearsal. And then all day Sunday from Sunday school, uh, the 11 o'clock service, uh, 5 o'clock or 5.30 BTU, and uh, the 7 o'clock evening service. I I need a court order just to get my kids to go an hour and a half every week, you know. I want to I want to go back to what you were saying about the segregated library, um, and, and if you can go back to mm-hmm. kind of being a kid, what was that like? Like, were you aware something's like fundamentally wrong here, or what was it like? You, yes and no, and the reason I say yes and no, that was the world that you lived in. Luckily for us, uh, you did not see the brutality that you saw other places. Like you, Alabama and Right. You know. Yes, when you when 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 you would go into Crest. Uh and department if, store, Crest Crest okay. five and dime store. Okay. The same building that's down there now. One of the things if you can remember uh, about that there was an entry on Church Street, and there was an entry on Orange Avenue. There was one entry for blacks and one entry for whites. Uh, I can remember that. I remember the white and the colored bathrooms, uh, the white and colored uh, water fountains. And you often wonder what was the difference in the water fountains, you know, uh, the one difference I noticed was that uh, most of the uh, uh, metal parts were, were nice and shiny. Ours was dull and some rusty. I remember uh, Woolworth uh, and uh, the lunch counter there, and uh, they had these hot dogs that was on this grill that spin. And I can remember they did these buns where they would brush them with butter. You make me hungry the way. And <laughs> and they would toast them. And and you would look at them through the window and you would look at them, fix them. And you could just literally watch somebody through the window tasting one, but you couldn't have one. The biggest thing I, I will never forget when they finally integrated uh, and you could go in there and buy one of those hot dogs. To this day, that was the best hot dog. It was like the bun just melted in my mouth, and I and I can just feel all of my te- taste buds just igniting with the flavor of that bun, and, and, and how nice and grilled that hot dog was, and. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. I, I, I tried to duplicate that at home. I didn't come close, but it was uh, it was pretty tasty. I, I sense it probably had less to do with the quality of the dog and more to do with the the moment. It was the moment and the idea. Yes, you were aware of it, but we were always taught uh, that don't dwell on that. Uh, and we were basically. 
we were shielded. Our world was the black community. It was the black church. It was the black businesses. And it was the, the black schools. So you, you saw very little of I would call ugliness because you were, on, you were basically confined to your own community. Of course you knew that uh, certain places you didn't go. And uh, you knew there were certain stores you couldn't go into. And then there were the ugly parts that I don't like to dwell on. I remember one summer I was working for uh, Harper Neon. I was, I think, I was in the 10th grade. And uh, it was one of these uh, summer programs that, that went through the city. And uh, a guy and I were out there just, it was, I would call it a make-work job. You know, we were cutting up metal and old uh, signs. And so, you know, during the lunch break, we were standing there. And one guy, i never forget, he asked me, he said, well, what do you want to be? And I said, I would like to be a lawyer. And he just laughed, said, how are you going to be a lawyer? The best you could ever hope to be is to be somebody's helper. I just find that sickening. But those, those were the realities. But uh, what, what, for you in that, do you remember that moment, what was going through your head? The, what went through my head was... Uh, you may think that, but I know that I'm going to be something different. Because we were always taught that we could be anything we wanted to be, as long as you were willing to work hard and put the time in. From your view, we clearly have come a long way. What percent there are we, whatever there is? You know, it's hard to uh, attach a percentage. Yes, we've come a long way. We have uh, a mayor uh, who happens to be an African-American. We have other elected representatives. Uh, So we've come a significant way, but we we have a long way uh, to go. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with... uh, the economic opportunities, the being able uh, uh, to get your fair share and part uh, of the American dream, uh, reinforcing uh, uh, and reinvesting in our public schools. Uh, you know, uh, I, I find it ironic, and in, in, uh, I uh, uh, that. We need to improve our public schools. Yeah. You know, uh, why is it that charter schools, some charter schools, not all can be successful, but we can't duplicate that in some of our public schools. And, and, that's, and that seems to be uh, a mystery. Uh, too often we forget that uh, with government, uh, we forget that that's a business. And we forget to run it like a business. Government is more reactive than proactive. Government does not want to invest like businesses do. Yes, that's good. Uh, moving, still staying in the same topic, but 
I don't know how to phrase this politically correct, okay? So give me some grace if I say okay. it wrong, okay? It seems to me, from somebody who's not typically in the criminal system, spends all my time in the civil system, but I, I, I have enough engagement with the world that it seems like the war on drugs has disproportionately affected those of color and those of a uh, of a certain economic uh, bracket. Okay, just and it it just it. I mean, I'm not an expert on the criminal justice system, but it seems like we we've got to do something relative to how we're uh, imprisoning on drug offenses uh, people. We, like something, it seems like we need to do something to the criminal justice system. Well, first of all, uh, the issue of mass incarceration when it comes to drug offenses, uh, I never like mandatory minimums. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you have this thing of you catch the low-hanging fruit. What's that mean? The, the, you catch the criminals that are easier to catch. And when you combine that with mandatory minimums, then that's where you get the problems. There's a delicate balance between enforcing the law which needs to be enforced. Sure. And uh, what you do in terms of sentencing. And I'm gonna give you a perfect example. Uh, when I finished Case Anthony, I, my original plan was to take two weeks off. Sounds reasonable. One of my colleagues about 10 days before the trial was over told me, oh, by the way, I wanna go to lunch, which I need to tell you something. So I went and he, uh, colleague informed me that I'm retiring and uh, and uh, I said when in the next 15 days and uh so I ended up having to uh, take over his division. So that Monday I had pre-trials. So the case rolls in. First case uh, uh, doing pre-trial. Uh, a man was charged with trafficking in oxycodone. Uh, Three-year mandatory minimum. $10,000 fine up to 15 years imprisonment. The state's offer was the mandatory minimum of three years imprisonment, $10,000 fine. So when you hear the word trafficking, and we all know trafficking does not mean trafficking, but you just ask the question anyway. What was he selling? What do you drugs? mean trafficking doesn't mean trafficking? It's a word that says trafficking in oxycodone. Okay. And when you think of that, you think of someone who's selling drugs. Yes. Okay. Doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that? No. What does it mean? It's the amount that you're possession, possessing. Okay. 
So I asked, uh, the first question I said, was the defendant selling drugs? No. About how many pills did he have? About 25, 30. And I asked the state, uh, does he have a prior record? No. So I look at the defense attorney who's eager to talk. I said, uh, was your client ever involved in some type of uh, accident? Yes. And was your client given a prescription for anything while he was injured in this accident? Yes, I knew where. What was he given? Oxycodone. The bottom line was the guy became addicted to oxycodone. Okay. And the 30 pills wasn't that he was trying to get 30 pills to sell, but when you can't get another script, and if you can score some pills, you're going to score as many as you can get. And I looked at the state, and I said, why are we, why should we want to put this man who has no criminal history in prison for three years and a $10,000 fine when we could save this space for somebody of a violent offense? And what useful purpose are we serving? And I looked at the prosecutor and I said, it sounds to me, I don't charge him, that's your decision, but it sounds like to me a plea to a possession of oxycodone, since you're not putting them in a diversion program, probation, drug counseling, and a withhold, and the statutory fine. Did they go there? Next day they came back and played him out to that. It's fascinating because your reputation, I, I mean this I know. respectfully and I know is is hard on crime. Like like when you were a judge, most people considered you and it's I'm not hearing that you're not hard on crime. What I hear is you're hard on crime They're but right but you're aware of the practical realities of the world. If you look at my record, uh, that comes from violent crime. Look, we cannot imprison everyone. At the same token, we have to realize there must be consequences to conduct. The question is, what are the proper consequences? The question is, you, you can't have a cookie-cutter approach. This suit and that jacket that you're wearing, everybody can't wear it. It won't fit them. So why do I have to put your jacket on someone that's 6'6 and weigh 300 pounds? It's not going to work. People who are involved in the criminal justice system will tell you this. Uh, there's about 10 to 15 percent, depending on wh whose percentage you use, that commit all the crimes. Okay? Some of those individuals that commit all the crimes and that's causing all the violent crimes and other things. Now, if you catch them doing possession of oxycodone, <coughs> do you think they need that? No, because they're, they're the ones that you, you didn't get that you couldn't prove that's out there raising hell and making the communities intolerable to live in. People want justice to be equal. 
Yes. People want to believe that when they're before the bar of justice, and they have a right not only to believe it, but to actually see it become a reality, that I come before the bar of justice with no pedigree, and that I'm treated like a citizen and treated fairly, that I don't get what I call cattle call justice. I don't get justice because of the zip code if, I if live in. If you keep in. going like that, I'm going to get a Belvin for state attorney tattoo on my forehead yeah. if you keep going like this. <clears throat> Shifting gears a little bit, going to your time as a chief judge, knowing most of the people that listen to this podcast are lawyers. Mm-hmm. They're Having led the volume of judges that we have in this circuit, um, and, I, and I know the chief judge is kind of the, this may be stronger than, a uh, stronger phrase than is accurate, but is, is literally the, like the president of the judges, you know, with a lot of power, with yes. executive order power. Um, what is it about judges that trial lawyers don't know? And they really should. It'll help them understand most judges. Judges are uh, human beings, and they have the same frailties that everyone else. But it's just like I tell judges. If you have no expectations out of your lawyers, don't expect them to do anything. And I think uh, that's a two-way street. The lawyers should have expectations out of judges. And, and one of the things, it, it took us as a circuit uh, to get to that point, but one of the things I'm most proud of was it was years ago I created what was known as the King Commission. I asked David King uh, to chair a commission uh, that had lawyers and judges on it to talk about how could we improve the administration of justice. Because what I saw was you would go from courtroom A to courtroom B, uh, Judge X had this set of procedures, Judge Y, she had this set of procedures, and we were getting too large for lawyers to go from courtroom to courtroom, and you had different orders Some judges wanted it this way, some judges wanted it that way, and it was totally unfair to the lawyers. Now, uh, were a number of judges unhappy that I corralled them and said we're gonna have one uniform order, that if we needed to change the order, then we all would agree on the changes to make sure Oh, if you couldn't agree, I would make the final decision. It made it easier for the lawyers to practice. It also showed the lawyers how valuable it was when they start squawking about hearing time. That you make sure that you try to work these things out before, because if you cancel the hearing 48 hours, that's not enough time to fill that hole for that judge. So it made people talk and made people communicate. Because this is the way I looked at it. Um, 
practice of law uh, is also the running of a business. Your time is valuable. I always used to hate and never would have these cattle calls where you may show up at 9 o'clock in the morning and by hook or crook you may be seen at 11 o'clock. Well, somebody has to pay for that. And my thing was, if I couldn't give you a definite hearing time, let's put you in a block. Yes. It, it, there, there's, I, I've had these days sometimes, uh, names unannounced, where I've sat there waiting in a, in outside of a hearing room, and I'm, I, I look around at 20 other lawyers, and I'll think of the economic inefficiencies of three hours, 20 lawyers, how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars just wasted. Uh, but it's, it's hard sometimes as a lawyer because we have to respect and honor the bench. And there's not a lot of opportunity. Like the King Commission sounds good. We might need the King Commission 2.0. We certainly have a we great chief we, judge. And we, we did it once. Yes. I mean, a second time after that. Uh, that's when I say that the lawyers have an obligation uh, to let the judges know what's wrong with the system. Judges are there to serve and not to be served. I mean... To me, it's not too much to want a judge to at least have read your pleadings and be somewhat familiar with that Yes. so the hearing can be meaningful. Tell me, tell me this. If we could go inside, I know judges spend a lot of time together. Go back to your time, 18 years, chief judge. What, what were the, the single biggest complaints about trial lawyers that, in particular in the civil world, what were the most common complaints that you would hear from trial judges? Lawyers not communicating. Lawyers being unreasonable. Uh, lawyers not solving things that could be solved among lawyers. Uh, Let me go to some uh, more practical areas, okay? Um, and and kind of what I'd like to do is shotgun. This, this these are advice. Assume all humility's out the door. Mm -hmm. You're gonna. I'm gonna tell you an idea, and you're just gonna give me one idea on how uh, advice you would give to to lawyers. All right, jury selection. Try to select people who understands the world, who can. Uh, understand the issues that are being brought before them and, 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 and individuals uh, to make sure that they don't bring their personal baggage. Dealing with judges in oral argument. Short and to the point and you make sure that you study them to know their likes and dislikes. Mm. Legal writing. Be as precise and to the point and not too wordy. O opening statements. Opening statement to the jury, uh, 
you have to paint a picture. And you got to paint a picture to them that paints what your client has experienced and why you think they should find for your client. And you can add the flair uh, and, and use some of your skills as an actor, but don't be overly dramatic. To a judge, an opening statement, simply the facts and the law. Cross-examination. Point out quite quickly uh, the fallacies in their direct examination and poke as many holes in their testimony as you can. Show the jury a reason why they shouldn't be believed. Single most important thing when communicating with juries. Honesty and straightforwardness. If you got a weakness in the case, tell them. But give them a reason why that weakness should not make a material difference in their decision in finding for your side. That's good. Um, um, okay, I have two sets of questions I ask every person, and, and they're this. If you were to give one piece of advice to a group of lawyers that are uh, 25 to 35, they're kind of in the first 10 years of their career, that first thing, if you were to give one piece of advice or a little set of advice, what would you say? I would tell them on the date of the anniversary as being admitted to the Florida bar to pull your oath out and reread it. I would also tell them, always remember that while you are an advocate, you are also an officer of the court. I would also tell them a third thing, uh, and this is to paraphrase a, a quote, uh, lawyers are the operators of a toll bridge that leads to justice. Never forget that because there are going to be some people that need justice, but they may not can't afford. They may can't afford your price. Always, you can't make a living off doing pro bono all the time. But always, be willing to give a helping hand. That's great, man. I I I think I need to read the the oath today. Second group of people, um, and this is, this is say, uh, 40 to 50. They have some traction in their careers, or they're established, but they still have lots of gas left in the tank. Mm -hmm. What piece of advice would you give to that group? Take time at that stage in your career to renew your vigor. Renew your energy and to refocus and recalibrate. Ask yourself the, uh, the tough questions. Are you happy with what you're doing? Are you happy how you've spent the last years of your life? And are you happy with how you've spent the last year of your law practice? Evaluate that. See if there's areas that you can improve on. Always remember that uh, 
Change is the key to success. Sometime after we've done something for so long, we become uh, totally oblivious to change. Either you change with the world or you get left behind. Mm, that's good. Well, I wish uh, you great success on your uh, state attorney's race and uh, good luck. Thanks for your time. Okay, thank you.